Welcome to Just Think, the podcast. The podcast where we don't want to tell you what to think. We just want to encourage you to do it. We are three friends that came from across the political spectrum who were tired of partisan politics and were alarmed at what we saw happening in our country, including the growing political divide. But we found as we challenged ourselves to recognize our own biases, to put them aside, we were absolutely united in our pursuit for the truth. And that's why we started this podcast to share the conversations we were having around that pursuit and to invite you into our conversation. To encourage you to feel free to ask questions. Search for the answers yourself to say what you think. That's right, because as we like to say, diversity of thought, ideas, and beliefs are welcome here. Asshats are not. (laughs) (laughs) All are welcome as long as you just think. This is Holly, and I'm here with Amy and Kristen. And today we have a special guest with us, someone that we have admired, um, I guess, for almost a year now, someone who we have looked to for his expertise, his insight into SARS-CoV-2. Knowing his experience, we've read about his credentials. We knew that he was someone that was on the front lines of looking into what was really happening with the pandemic. And if you know our stories... Kristen, Amy, and I were all business owners, we're moms, wives. Kristen's an ER nurse or former ER nurse. Amy and I have no medical background, but something inside all of us, even though we came from across the political spectrum, something inside of all of us was saying something doesn't seem right. And it was Dr. Peter McCullough, who I remember where I was. I was driving in the car. I want to say Kristen or Amy sent me a video of him on YouTube. And he was explaining how the pandemic had unfolded, how the virus had come into the United States and how the medical community was responding and how it was different from anything he'd seen in his history as a physician, as a researcher, as a scientist, as a very peer reviewed, Um, practitioner. And so I do want to give a proper introduction. Then, of course, um, I want Kristen and Amy to say a few words, and then we're going to turn it over to him because we want you to hear from him in the short time we have with him today. But Dr. Peter McCullough um, has an extensive history, certainly as a cardiologist. I won't tell you everywhere that he's worked um, because it's extensive, but I want you to know that he went to, uh, he attended Baylor University where he graduated from uh, at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, 1988, he got his degree. Um, He has a residency in internal medicine in Seattle, attending physician at Mercy Hospital in Michigan, went to uh, Michigan School of Public Health. So he got his master's degree also in public health. He has been a fellow in cardiovascular diseases He was with the Henry Ford Heart and Vascular Institute until 2000. I mean, from 2000 on, this guy has been a consultant cardiologist at Beaumont Hospital, um, Chief Division of Nutrition and Preventative Medicine, Division of Cardiology. I mean, listen, do you hear me? Cardiology, cardiology, cardiology. Um, He has been um, the Vice Chief of Internal Medicine. He is recognized, and I think this is most importantly, how his peers He has so many peer-reviewed articles. He has been trusted to give his insight and expertise in both cardiology and certainly also in the effects 
of um, kidneys and cardiovascular health. Is that right? I think I have that right. Um, Dr. McCullough, I'm sure that I have not done a great job of introducing you, but I feel like anyone can find this information. Um, it certainly was not hard for us to find. You certainly have done the work and you have proven that you have a voice at the table and experience with dealing with respiratory type viruses, diseases, its impact on our health. And so uh, we were telling our audience that you were going to be speaking with us today. And Kristen, we got, set, we got a lot of feedback from our listeners, <laughs> Dr. McCullough, and someone wrote something to Kristen that we wanted to read because we thought it was pretty impressive. So Kristen, will you share that? I promise we'll let you talk, Dr. McCullough, but we <laughs> just want to tell everybody just how much of an expert and how much of an amazing uh, man and human being that you are. But one of our friends said, over this last year, we've been greatly disappointed by the medical community. My dad's a doctor. I hate saying that, but they are mostly living in their little boxes and don't do their own research as much as depend on the medical bureaucrats to tell them what's real, which is why Dr. McCullough is such a rock star because he does his research, forms his own conclusions, and has the balls to stand behind them. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> But I'll tell you, and one other person, one of my dear friends, Kristen, said, many of the physicians I've followed and admired, but he just stands out. He's just so authentic and genuinely cares about his patients, and he's such an advocate for truth. Rare quality for a car cardiologist also. <laughs> so, but we just want you to know, like, it, it honestly is a true testament that you just show up. Um for little old us, yeah, you know, we're growing, you know, leaps and bounds with our podcast, but it just shows it's your heart and your intention. So without further ado, please take over. <laughs> well, I, don't, I don't know how to come back after that introduction to be on a ladies broadcast like this, but it's certainly a pleasure. So as introduced, I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I am in practice in Dallas, Texas, academic practice uh, in internal medicine and cardiology. I maintain my boards in those specialties. And I see patients about half the time. In fact, the, the office manager was just uh, texting me about, is the office gonna be open tomorrow or not? We're supposed to have an ice storm uh, come in. I have a whole ton of patients scheduled. And about the other half of the time, I'm an author, I'm an editor, I'm a clinical investigator. Uh, I've uh, performed clinical research my entire career. Uh, I'm the editor-in-chief of Cardiorenal Medicine, the former editor of uh, Cardiorenal Medicine, editor-in-chief of Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine. I'm the editor the inaugural textbook, Cardiorenal Medicine. I've been in a contributor of Braunwald's textbook of cardiology, which is considered the Bible of cardiology now for several decades. And um, you know, as you implied, before COVID-19, uh, I've had over 600 publications in the peer-reviewed literature. Now I'm topping uh, 660 uh, citations in the National Library of Medicine. I presented at um, the Congressional Oversight Panel of the NIH uh, in 2007 regarding a product label expansion in my area. I've uh, presented at the New York Academy of Sciences, the FDA, the um, uh, European Medical Association. I've lectured all over the world. Uh, two years ago, I was the endowed lecturer at Harvard. Uh, so I'm uh, known in the medical community as a contributor, a medical researcher. And when COVID-19 hit, I realized that this was, in a sense, um, our biggest challenge we are ever going to face. And when I went on Tucker Carlson, I told Tucker, I said, it's our medical Super Bowl. And I wasn't going to sit in the stands and watch. I wanted to be in the game and making my contributions. And the, the biggest contribution I saw that was needed was how to treat COVID-19, that the literature was mounting in uh, early in 2020, but nobody was actually, in a sense, 
of, you know, reducing to practice an approach that could treat people to avoid two bad outcomes, hospitalization and death. So I undertook that uh, early in 2020, surveyed all the literature. I was working with doctors at UCLA and Emory and others and working with a cortical group in Italy. And we put together our findings and published them in the American Journal of Medicine in August of 2020. And the paper was titled Pathophysiologic Basis and uh, Rationale for the early ambulatory treatment of COVID-19. That was a breakthrough paper. That was the first paper that used what's called the precautionary principle, meaning that this is a mass casualty event. Our senior citizens were being hospitalized. Sadly, uh, you know, 40% of all COVID deaths occur in nursing home patients. That's where the casualties were, were uh, ongoing. And uh, we uh, it, it basically made this statement that we can't wait for large randomized trials. It's gonna take too long. We needed drugs with a signal of benefit, acceptable safety. And like all serious infections, we use multiple drugs. We knew a single drug wasn't gonna treat it. So we had drugs to treat the viral phase of the, um, of the infection, the inflammatory phase, and then the blood clotting or thrombotic phase and put that all together. And when that hit the, the um, National Library of Medicine and American Journal of Medicine, it went viral. It was the most downloaded and utilized paper for that journal for the entire year. It became the basis of the um, Association of American Physicians Surgeons Home Treatment Guide that was published in September of 2020. Later, it was copyrighted by Ben Marble of myfreedoctor.com. It was copyrighted as the McCullough Protocol. So my name is on something. I didn't want that fanfare, but Ben did it out of respect. And so many have talked about the McCullough Protocol, including Aaron Rodgers, quarterback of the Green Bay Packers. And uh, you know, Aaron said, I'm grateful for getting the McCullough Protocol. Joe Rogan said the same thing. And I've said, listen, that's just kind of good, how good minds were working. And America should be reassured that while I was working with, in my circles of academic experts, uh, Vladimir Zelenko was working privately in Monroe, New York, Yvette Lozano here in Dallas, Brian Proctor here in Plano. Uh, we had Didier Rialt in Marseille, France. Uh, all these doctors were working separately, George Freed and Brian Tyson, South Central California, all working separately, slightly different protocols in order to come up with the same conclusions. A big group came on, the Frontline Critical Care Consortium, Dr. Pierre Corey and Paul Merrick. Uh, so different protocols arose, but with the same principles. We needed multiple drugs in an organized fashion, about four to six drugs. COVID-19 was easily treatable. We estimated early on, when I testified in the US Senate on November 19th, 2020, I told America, I think half of the deaths could have been avoided through 2020 because you know there's a learning curve in how to do this. Uh, but then when I got to the Texas Senate on March 10th of March 10th of 2021, I, I upped that. I thought 85% of deaths could have been avoided. And now in the historic U.S. Senate panel that just occurred on January 24th, 2022, uh, the number estimate that I would put on it now is 95% of all hospitalizations and deaths could have been avoided with early treatment for COVID-19 at home. I agree. Yeah, I totally agree. And now, Dr. McCullough, because I know the listeners, we just went through the holidays. I don't know what it was like in Texas for you, but here in North Carolina, everybody got COVID in December. It's like Oprah said, you get Omicron, you get Omicron, you get Omicron, we all got it. So, There's a a report out of Scotland today that I thought was interesting, where they estimated that only 4% of all COVID infections were reinfections. But the big news with Omicron, it broke on December 10th, is that someone who was fully immune from a prior version could get Omicron. In fact, that happened to me, people in my family. Omicron came for Christmas too. And in my family and extended family, I got to see 
Omicron from age five to age 98. So I, 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 I saw the entire spectrum in my house. And my observations were that uh, those who are COVID recovered, it was a very, very mild syndrome, maybe less an hour or two, maybe a day, didn't require any treatment. Those who had had the vaccines, it was also a mild uh, infection. <clears throat> but those who are truly susceptible, not vaccinated, uh, never had COVID before, it could be more like a standard cold for about three to five days. So we had that spectrum. Uh, and I've, you know, I've developed quite an experience in managing Omicron in my practice. Fortunately, the outbreak is nearly over with. The Omicron curve was very tall, but narrow, only six weeks in duration. And now it's basically over with. And so were you treating your patients at home and, and were you using that McCullough protocol? Has that altered any in recent months or is that still the way you're treating? Yeah, we did have to uh, post an update to the McCullough protocol that went into the AAPS home treatment guide. It's also reproduced by the Truth for Health Foundation. And this was, these were the updates. The, the first update is that the, uh, because uh, Omicron replicates 70 times faster than Delta in the nose, it is a, a replication machine in the nose, doesn't invade the body so much, but the fever and the symptoms actually emanate out of the nasal cavities. We needed to use uh, nasal and oral virucidal washes. There's now 12 studies supporting them. And how we do that is we use a dilute povidone iodine uh, a half a teaspoon of this betadine, that brown liquid used in the ER to sterilize wounds, half a teaspoon in a shot glass of water, 1.5 ounces, go over the sink, use a bulb syringe or a spray bottle, fill up the nasal cavity you could, you, with the liquid, sniff it back, sniff it all the way back and spit it out. You almost have to kind of choke on it a little bit to, to get it back there. Do both sides twice and gargle with the rest. That's a thorough nasal wash. If the iodine can't be tolerated, you can use uh, dilute hydrogen peroxide. It comes in a 3% solution. And we, with that, we can use um, uh, three quarters of a teaspoon in a shot glass, 1.5 ounces of water, and do the same procedure. If it stings, then make it more dilute. It, it doesn't need to be very strong to kill the virus. But those, uh, those virucidal washes are done typically twice a day in prevention mode. And then we can do it up to every four hours in active treatment. That's the most important form of treatment. That'll take away the fever and the constitutional symptoms uh, the most rapidly. After that, uh, we use vitamins and supplements, but an update here, we, we now change the term to what's called over-the-counter bundle, OTC bundle. And that includes zinc, 50 milligrams, vitamin D3, 5,000 milligrams a day, but increased to 20,000 with active treatment, vitamin C, 3,000 milligrams a day, quercetin, 500 milligrams twice a day, and then an over-the-counter antihistamine and acid, uh, famotidine or pepsid, but 80 milligrams a day. That OTC bundle, uh, was uh, an update, and I'll be I'll uh, provide the figure for your podcast of the the most recent McCullough protocol. And then when we got down to antivirals, we had a change because now we have the new Pfizer drug called Paxlovid. That's a combination of nelfenpiravir plus uh, ritonavir. So it's it's three tablets given twice a day. Uh, that was added, and then we added uh, molnupiravir, which is the uh, single polymerase inhibitor offered by Merck. So now that oral antiviral layer was bigger. And then we had to make a change in the monoclonal antibody layer of the protocol. Monoclonal antibodies, high-risk seniors, nursing home patients there. Uh, we could no longer use Regeneron or uh, Lilly because a modeling study by Pulliam and colleagues suggested that the antibodies weren't gonna hit the new mutated spike protein of Omicron. And so we featured the GlaxoSmithKline product, so Sotorivimab. So that's a lot of medical terms. Uh, review it with your audience. 
Okay, great. And so what was the move? I know, uh, am I breaking up girls? Can you guys hear me okay? Okay. Um, what the move, uh, you know, historically you have, you among others, Dr. Pierre Corey, so many others that we could rattle off. You, you were one of the first to say ivermectin, hydrochloroquine, these sort of forbidden drugs that were really being kind of raked over the coals in the mainstream media. You were one of the doctors saying, no, we've seen evidence that this can work. Why did you see that maybe change? Did you see that change over Omicron and move to the newer drugs? Uh, well, no, <laughs> I think they largely are still effective. With the update on hydroxychloroquine, we have over 300 supportive studies. It's now officially government recommended in over 30 countries. Ivermectin, there's over 60 supportive studies uh, recommended in over 20 countries. Between the two, Ivermectin has got a, a broader range of scope. It works both inpatient and outpatient. And it actually has better efficacy numbers, probably about a 70% benefit, whereas hydroxychloroquine is about a 25% benefit. Now with Omicron, interesting breaking news, a randomized trial, phase three trial from Japan shows that ivermectin is highly efficacious against Omicron. I have been using that uh, in my clinical practice uh, for those susceptible patients with more severe syndromes. Typically, you know, we have a stair step in dosing 200, 400, and 600 micrograms per kilogram. I have been using 400 or 600 micrograms per kilogram, uh, but compressed over about three days and combined white with prednisone as opposed to sequencing it because Omicron is, uh, is a rapid illness. It, it, people get over it very quickly, but it's, it can be intense. So that was the update there. And so the way I characterize this is the first year of the pandemic was the year of hydroxychloroquine. And I had one of the first investigation of new drug applications on HCQ, led a clinical study there. And uh, you know, Peter Navarro from the White House had reached out to me to help with the emergency use authorization to broaden it. And ultimately the FDA worked to stifle hydroxychloroquine. And then the second year of the pandemic was really the year of ivermectin. And I give great credit to Pierre Corey, uh, Dr. Paul Merrick, Dr. Merrick, who testified in the Senate with me He's considered the father of critical care. He's published more papers on critical care than anybody in history. So between Dr. Merrick and myself, that's a thousand peer reviewed publications. That's more than most medical schools. So it, the US Senate really saw the academic firepower uh, at play and, and Senator Ron Johnson was clear. And by the way, this is gonna be in this uh, issue of the McCullough Report coming up on America Out Loud Talk Radio this weekend. I list every federal official who was invited to the Senate panel who didn't show up. Uh, and there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people who didn't show up to hear the data. They weren't, they didn't come and listen to the experts analyze the data. And I think that's gonna really go down in history. And this is where we have to ask you, because when we have listened to you and Dr. Corey, and again, we, Kristen has a medical background, Amy and I don't, we find it so compelling how much you all stick to facts, data, research from around the globe, right? Because you're looking at all different countries. And as you said early on, working with Italy to figure out what was going on there. So we found it so compelling that you would actually stay, you know, you really tried to stick to the facts that you had at hand. And that made us want to listen to you. It, it certainly made us trust you more. Okay, but now you have the Joe Rogan thing that's happening where people are criticizing him for saying, having people like you and Dr. Malone and Pierre Corey and um, Brett Weinstein, all these people saying, well, that, that's misinformation. Tell, can you help us understand how it became that two, as you said, highly peer reviewed um, doctors with 
years and years of experience become misinformation, but let's say Dr. Fauci or anybody who's with the NIH is not information, misinformation. How did yeah, that happen? Yeah, let's pick up on that. <laughs> so this is important. So just the context, Joe Rogan reached out to me personally and wanted me on for about a month and I was too busy. And I said, listen, you know, I should, you know, I don't want to do it by phone or WebEx. I want to go down in the studio so we can go over the data. And specifically, I wanted to bring my computer and go over the continuing medical education slides on COVID-19. So I had given the uh, closing address at the Association of American Physician and Surgeons. And so, you know, slides are submitted, they're vetted, they're peer reviewed, they're continuing medical education certified. These are certified vetted slides of which there were some additions from key journals like Lancet or JAMA. And uh, when I went over the data with Joe, I just showed him the data. And, you know, people are claiming that he had opinions. Joe Rogan had no opinions. I listened to every word. Joe Rogan basically was the media person. I was presenting the data. I didn't present any opinions either. I just presented the data. Now, interestingly, uh, Spotify never reached out to me to review the slides. Spotify never announced who their medical experts are. You know, Neil Young and the people that attack Spotify and Joe Rogan, he didn't reach out to me either. And we could have went over the slides together. So it's just going over scientific data. It's all published. You can People can pull the papers and individually review them. So that, that's what this is about. When we were in the US Senate panel on Monday, January 24th, if the federal officials were there, we were just citing the paper. Senator Johnson just had a easel where he had the data. Uh, Harvey Risch from Yale just had the data on an easel. We were just going over scientific published um, material. So, uh, you know, it's interesting. I've never had anybody directly call me, email me, or have a discussion regarding, you know, an alternative view on the data. Not one and person, that, not, not one. Not one. Not, not one. not one government employee, not one elected official has ever said, but, I see this. Do you Matter of fact, I've, I've welcomed it. I've welcomed it. Uh, you know, in, in our group, and actually testified in the Senate with Steve Kerr. Steve's not a doctor. He's a businessman. He's the leader of the COVID early treatment fund and now the vaccine injury fund. Steve took the vaccines. His family took the vaccines. He's not against vaccines. Steve has offered $2 million to any doctor, any public health official, any stakeholder who would simply sit at a round table and have a discussion on vaccine safety and efficacy. Do you know not a single doctor will do it? He's called Stanford, all the major medical schools. No one will do it. No media doctor, no one on CNN, nobody in the CDC, NIH, or FDA, no doctor in your community, believe it or not, would come forward and make the case for the vaccines to collect $2 million. That should tell you something. <laughs> tell us it tells us a lot. It tells us a lot. And it should tell a lot of people a lot. Yeah, we, we loved your tweet. We loved your tweet. We, we found this tweet where he said, instead of going after Rogan, who is not a doctor, uh, why, why don't the president, Saki, Spotify, invite me for a review of the data so they can fully see and understand all the peer-reviewed ad preprint data they are trying to censor? How can they know what to censor if they don't review it? Which is exactly what you just said. It makes no how, sense. How could how, how Neil Young or, or anybody know what to censor unless they review the data and they'd have to decide do they want to censor a paper in JAMA or do they want to censor a paper in Lancet 
or do they want to censor a paper in the Journal of Clinical Infectious Diseases? They'd have to figure out what journals they want to censor. You know, with vaccine injuries, there's over a thousand peer-reviewed publications. So they'd have to go through a lot of papers and try to decide what they want to exclude or include. It's a lot of work, but I'm happy to go, th I'm happy to go through it with them. Yeah. yeah. What we found um, in all of our podcasting that we've done is that when you can't attack the facts, you just attack the person or the character. We see that all the time. Yep. So. You know, it's interesting. You've heard of fact checkers, right? Oh. <laughs> so, so Dan O'Connor, Dan O'Connor, who is the, yeah, who's the CEO of Trial Site News, he has actually fact checked the fact checkers. And it turns out that a typical fact check, and by the way, there were fact checkers who who listened to every word of my Joe Rogan interview. And I'm glad they did. That was good for them to hear every word. And, and so they would, a typical fact check claim would be Dr. McCullough presented this study, but no, it's, it's not this way that uh, the virus does this. And, and whatever the fact checker says is never cited. So um, what uh, Dan O'Connor did is he fact checked the fact checkers and he, he clicked on who they are and it, it takes a couple of clicks and, and they're, it, it goes right back to the vaccine stakeholders. So the, the fact checkers look like they're either employed or affiliated with those promoting the vaccines. That Did he reach out to them? Did he reach out to them? Yeah, he's reached out to them. And of course, uh, uh, you know, they don't respond. Um, but, but it's clear that fact checkers are actually those who are working to promote the vaccines. So, uh, and Dan O'Connor's exposed that. Um, but I'm glad, you know, there was... Um, uh, an academic doctor at University of California, San Francisco, I can't remember his name, a junior doctor, but he also went through the Joe Rogan interview and he wrote this very extensive uh, analysis of it. I'm glad he listened to every word. I, 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 he's, he'd be disappointed to know I'm not listening to every word that he says. I say I don't have time, but I'm glad he listened to every word I had to say. And uh, at any rate, I told Joe Rogan, invite him on. We will have a discussion. Won't do it. Yeah. Won't do it. That, that, person, that person had no citations either. And there's been several people. I even went on, um, I went on uh, a podcast in Eastern Europe where someone had, again, listened to every <coughs> word of the three hours and they had, let's say, two dozen different points. And I addressed each one of them, each one of them. So I'll give you an example. Someone said, Dr. McCullough said, that by midsummer, the number of people who could have died after the vaccines was 45,000. And said, well, you know, he didn't cite a peer review paper. And my answer is, no, I didn't, but I cited a federal lawsuit that was filed by Tom Rents, and it's in the filings of the complaint. And that using Center for Medicare Medicaid data, uh, an extrapolation was done to the nation based on vaccine administration. And the number at that time came up to be 45,000. And so, you know, with every claim, I come with the source of information. I think that's the reason why no one's actually ever challenged me. Well, I haven't heard Absolutely. Fauci or Walensky tell any peer-reviewed, uh, back anything that they say up with a peer-reviewed study. Nothing you know, I, you know I, had a I had a chance to have dinner with Scott Atlas. Uh, we presented together at a symposium. Scott's kind of one of my contemporaries at Stanford. And Scott, I asked him about that. I said, how come that, you know, you and I have the data. We, we just quote the data. Scott's been focused largely on lockdowns and social measures. Uh, he's relatively uh, promotional of the vaccine. So Scott's not against the vaccines. So we, you know, we, it was just fine. We have different um, analyses. At any rate, uh, I asked Scott about that. He, he thinks they're unqualified. So he put in his book, he's actually published a book on this, 
Scott Atlas thinks that the leaders of our federal health agencies, they actually can't analyze data. That, that's the reason why they don't cite it. They actually don't know about it and they can't analyze it. He, he thinks they're they, incompetent. They lied. They pulled out numbers. Remember the 80%, 80%. that uh, Walensky said masks Mask are 80% effective. And yeah. we're like, where'd she get that from? Yeah. You know? Um, and then when she said the 75% had comorbidity, 75% or more, I'm like, it's actually 95%. And we knew that a year ago. Yeah. yeah. But all of a sudden it's new, right? Well, um, go ahead. I was, I was gonna just going to say, when I looked at the fact checking, so I looked at, I was looking at what people were accusing Dr. McCullough of saying on Joe Rogan's podcast. What did they find fault with? And just on healthfeedback.org, they listed out the claim that Dr. McCullough said the pandemic was planned. The COVID-19 vaccines are experimental. Previously infected people have permanent immunity, something that you did change later, uh, Dr. McCullough, when the evidence showed that. VAERS shows vaccines killed thousands of people. Vaccine-induced spike protein causes damage. And when I look at all the things, I'm like, okay, we'll prove that he's wrong. There right. is zero evidence that you're wrong in any of those. They just say you can't substantiate which as we know. But well, well, you know, that's interesting. If the fact checkers <laughs> intended to swing opinion, um, you can, when you read that, one would actually start to develop the opinion that, wow, this, this doesn't sound too good. So <laughs> each, you know, each one of these. Um, uh, so for instance, um, uh, uh, you know, one of the claims is about the planned nature of the pandemic. I mean, there's been two movies, Plandemic 1, Plandemic 2. Uh, there's been books, uh, you know, in the Joe Rogan interview, I cited Peter Bregan, COVID-19 and the Global Predators, We Are the Prey. I said, listen, it's not my opinion. You can go to Bregan's book and see the nature of how things was was planned out. So, yeah, um, yeah. you know, again, just, uh, uh, you know, and I'm very careful on that. I, you know, I don't claim to be an expert on the origin of the vaccines or the virus, but Dr. Bregan is. Uh, there's another paper by Robert F. Kennedy about the intentions of our National Allergy Immunology Branch Director referred to Bobby Kennedy's book. It's perfectly fine to re refer to the, to the books. I think they're, they're, they're works of nonfiction and people can critique them. Uh, do you know that despite, uh, I think breaking, breaking all records in sales, uh, I know for sure on the Bobby Kennedy book through mid-January, there wasn't a single book review. There wasn't a single major book review done on the Bobby Kennedy book. What does that tell you? Yeah, it, it, a lot. Makes, it tells us a lot. Wow. It tells us everything we need to know. There you go. And there's a lot of sites and sources in that book because I have it. Um, <laughs> do you have a specific, so we have some specific questions. I know you don't have a whole lot more time, um, but since we have the cardiologist specialist on here, I know a lot of people want to understand. I know you've explained this before. You have so many, your McCullough report and we'll plug all your thing, all of your resources later as well. But, you know, First of all, they, it seems like they are normalizing myocarditis, pericarditis, like acting like this, you know, they used to, first of all, they say it's rare and now they're acting like, oh, it's mild, it's okay. You know, it would be really nice for people to understand. I mean, is it really mild? How long does it take? Because I've read that it could take five years for them to follow up. I know in the vaccine trials that they're doing that, following up for five years if they've got myocarditis, correct? And, um, you know, what's the difference between myocarditis with COVID infection versus the vaccine? I think that would be a really good um, Okay, answer. so <laughs> let's take the last one first. So with the respiratory illness, clinical myocarditis uh, effectively doesn't occur. And that's been disproven 
by a paper from uh, St. Louis by Joy and colleagues. It was published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology Imaging, where people with COVID, community COVID, went through detailed studies uh, that doesn't cause myocarditis. What's been reported is an elevation in cardiac troponin <clears throat> in patients in the hospital uh, with COVID adults. And that was initially reported from China and they used the right term. The Chinese called that cardiac injury pattern by troponin, which we'll see in sick people in the ICU. We see that with pneumococcal and gram negative sepsis too. So it's not unique to COVID, but it's not myocarditis, but it is triggering some ICD codes. So any claims that COVID-19, the respiratory illness causes the clinical syndrome of myocarditis are not supported in the literature. What the vaccines do is they actually cause myocarditis. And I mean, myocarditis, manifested by chest pain, shortness of breath, heart failure can manifest as sudden death. And there, uh, we have market elevations in blood test, cardiac troponin, dramatic EKG changes. And then about a quarter of patients have reduced uh, right or left ventricular ejection fraction by, um, by echo. And the striking thing in papers by Trong and by Shower and, and we're done, that in those with vaccine-induced myocarditis, nearly all of them, nearly all of them have evidence of heart damage by MRI. So this is really important, even some of those with the subtle symptoms. So what I'm telling you is that uh, I'm looking at the US CDC VAERS report from January 21st, 2022. Sadly, in the United States, we've had 29,716 cases of myocarditis, pericarditis. That is an astronomical number. And uh, we know from a paper by Arolio and colleagues from Finland that the background rate should be four cases per million because it can happen with a parvovirus or an adenovirus. We now are estimated with the vaccines, data by uh, uh, Shire and colleagues from Kaiser Permanente Northwest at over 400 cases per million percent in voice. And the peak age is 18 to 24. And we know that the vast number in papers by Trong and by Hogue and the original CDC analysis, that it's not mild because uh, greater than 90% end up in the hospital. So it takes a lot to hospitalize a teenager or college age boy. So they're not mild. And uh, the other thing is, it's not rare because obviously there's been a huge number of people now with heart damage. And the, the questions people are asking is, well, um, you know, is there any consequence to this? So I can tell you as a cardiologist, we got to take the kids out of sports. They can't exercise. We take it three months at a time, typically drugs to treat the myocarditis, colchicine and uh, prednisone, and then drugs to treat heart failure. That would be ACE inhibitors and beta blockers and other drugs, three month increments, uh, hopefully get the situation to resolve where the kids don't go into permanent heart failure. And, uh, you, you know, and they have to certainly be out of sports. Many, I've had college kids miss a lot of class. Uh, Olympic marathoner Fabian Schrunk from uh, Switzerland has a woman who's triple vaxxed, uh, developed myocarditis. She's out running for the season. And we know a lot of athletes must power through it or don't have any symptoms. Uh, it's all associational right now, but since mass vaccination occurred across Europe, uh, there's been an unprecedented number of athletes that have died on the field, male athletes. Uh, now nearly 500 with sudden death, half have not been resuscitated back. Uh, it's interesting, we haven't seen the same pattern of deaths <coughs> in US athletes. And I had a chance to learn with uh, Aaron Rose and Joe Rogan that, you know, not all the athletes had to take the vaccine. In fact, maybe a lot haven't taken the vaccine at all. And they have various non-disclosures or confidentiality agreements to keep that uh, quiet. But we haven't, thankfully, we haven't seen the same pattern in the United States. There are deaths in the United States, 
When I testified in the uh, Senate on January 24th, there was a man, his first name was Ernesto. He was in the room. His uh, son died of vaccine-induced myocarditis. And so he's uh, trying to raise awareness with other parents. You know, I've been on Laura Ingram when the story broke. I was on Fox News back or in the spring of 2021. I told the parents, no vaccine for children, none. Just don't do it. Uh, it's, it looks, it's far too risky. Uh, we know COVID-19 is a mild illness, like a common cold. Omicron's even milder. I've seen it myself in young children. Uh, I've seen Omicron in a child below age five. Believe it or not, Pfizer was just approved below age five. Oh, yeah. And it, it's like a drippy nose. You, you couldn't tell it from an average day in a kid going to daycare. You couldn't even tell if it's Omicron or not. I certainly wouldn't want a genetic um, treatment injected into a child, an experimental genetic treatment where it hasn't been tested for cancer, hasn't been tested to whether or not it causes growth defects or birth defects, hasn't been tested to see if it's gonna influence their immune system or damage their hearts. I mean, the data looks like it will damage their hearts. And, and, and again, people ask me, well, Dr. McCullough, can they get through it? Is it gonna be fine? Uh, United Kingdom just issued a guidelines about how to diagnose and management, manage vaccine-induced myocarditis. This is a new disease that doctors now need to know about you know, I'd say the best way to prevent the disease is don't take the vaccine. You can never get vaccine-induced myocarditis if you don't take the shot. There you to go. <laughs> be, to, to begin with. Um, but what we know in a paper by Tishopi and colleagues is that uh, about 32% really do take some damage. 13% never come back, that they're going to be permanently damaged. And so, you know, there will be scores of young men, almost certainly the majority being, you know, uh, older teenagers or young college age men that will be damaged by this and fewer women. And it's all avoidable. It's all avoidable by simply not taking the vaccines. No wonder Indiana University had protests and lawsuits. No wonder, same thing at University of Chicago. No wonder the college kids don't want the vaccines. They, they don't want this risk of being injured. Yes. Well, and I think yeah, go ahead, Holly. I was just say also uh, fertility, uh, Dr. McCullough, we don't know the impacts of them, uh, their ability to have children in the future, right? That's another unknown. That, that, that's true. I mean, all the information we have on fertility is, is really worrisome. There is a biodistribution study that was done um, by Pfizer for the Japanese, which showed the lipid nanoparticles in animals hyperconcentrated in the ovaries. We don't want vaccines to go to the ovaries, but in fact, they did. There was a paper from China a few years ago showing the lipid nanoparticle technology actually targets the reproductive organs. This is before the vaccine. So this was actually known uh, before the vaccine development. And then there's a concerning fertility study uh, done by Moderna in animals submitted to the EMA where the vaccines did drop fertility, not to the threshold to kill the program, but they clearly did. Uh, and that's concerning. Uh, so we don't know, is it one shot, two shots, maybe boosters before fertility is impacted. We know the lipid nanoparticles go to the corpus luteum layer of the ovaries. That's where the genetic material is, is the, the payload is deposited into reproductive cells. And then they start to produce the spike protein. The spike protein is a dangerous protein. It was altered uh, in the lab in Wuhan, China. Um, so it's really disturbing to think our young women would have a protein that's been altered in a lab in China installed and being produced in their ovaries. I mean, that's a very, very disturbing thought. Our, our, disturbing our, our, children, our children are precious. Uh, yeah. We should have no foreign proteins produced in our children's reproductive organs. I mean, you, you, just, you just present it that way and right. say, you know, do, do you want this foreign protein to genetically be produced in your uh, ovaries of your children, your young girls or, or the testicles of young men? You know, you know under no circumstances, that <laughs> one with any type of reasonable common sense would say under no circumstances.
Absolutely. Well, I think the other point too is that it's not, for anything to have an emergency use authorization, we need an emergency. And there is not an emergency with that age group, especially six months to five years, five to 11. How in the world are they claiming that this is an emergency for emergency use authorization um, and doing this, I, it's, it's uncalled, it's un, un Well, speaking of emergency, you know, you said in the beginning of this podcast that we've seen the peak of Omicron, right? It's gone straight up. It's starting to wane. So as far as emergency goes, like where, where do we go from here? Is this the I, end? Yeah. I've said, I've said on multiple TV interviews that the emergency phase of the pandemic is, is over with uh, former white house advisor, and World Health Organization advisor Paul Alexander has said, it's on the record in the US Senate, the emergency phase of the pandemic is over with. Paul is now leading uh, the trucker convoy up in Ottawa. And uh, Paul just sent me a video, I wanna review it, but I'm sure he's announced to Canada that the emergency phase is over with, it's time to return to normal. You know, the United Kingdom, Senator Johnson and I were on a call with members of parliament yesterday, United Kingdom, they've dropped all the mandates, all the emergency restrictions across England, Ireland, and Scotland. No one will ever take a mandated vaccine again. I bet the vaccines just are dropped like a hot potato. Nobody wants them. People don't want to wear masks. They just want to return to normal. And right. so, you know, I, I think we're, we're going to, the, the wall is crumbling. It just depends on which way the big blocks fall. But uh, there's no doubt people want to return to normal. Uh, you know, we can get through this. There's no more emergency um, I announced I was, uh, I, I give public programs and they are amazing. Thousands of people show up to public programs. There's a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of, you know, young people like you come and, and they want to learn more. Uh, and it's a lot of energy. And I was at the Fox River Lutheran Church in rural Illinois, south of Chicago. And I made a statement at the end. I said, the day the vaccines are off the market and dropped will become a national, if not worldwide holiday. And people stood up and it was standing room ovation. People were clapping. You know, there's two standing room ovations. When I said that, and then the other one was interesting is I showed a really nice graphical picture of a Canadian truck, a, a big wheeler, a big, uh, big rigger with a giant swirl of a snowstorm. And I announced the Canadians, they were shutting down the supply chain in Canada, to stop these vaccines, and everybody got up and cheered. And it was a tremendous. So I think America's had enough. And if anything, COVID-19 has galvanized us. It's made our families closer. Uh, it's brought us closer to our seniors. I know personally, um, I missed Christmas last year with both sets of parents. My wife and I, both of our sets of parents are still alive. We're so fortunate uh, we survived covid uh, and now this year we missed it. This year we missed it because we had Omicron ourselves. So I just had my parents now, you know, three weeks later home and we exchanged Christmas gifts and we said, listen, let's not miss another Christmas. Let's get back to normal. We love that. Well, that's our last question for you because we know you have to go, Dr. McCullough. When people say, what can we do? You know, those of us sitting at home, we're not doctors, we're the average American, but we want this to end. We want this to end. What, what can the average person do to help escalate that and make that happen or expedite that, make it happen faster? I think each and every person, one of the things they need to do is they need to bring the doctors back. So I think each person should have a conversation with their doctor and ask two things. 
Are you ready to treat COVID-19 if I get it or if someone in my family gets it? Are you ready to new, use the new drugs, Merck, Pfizer, GlaxoSmithKline drugs? So that, that a conversation needs to happen because you need to know. Um, the other thing is, uh, I think patients need to talk with their doctors about vaccine safety. We have, uh, you know, we have over uh, 21,000 deaths now. I've reviewed the myocarditis cases. We're approaching 40,000 permanently disabled people. I think people can just print out the red box report from the CDC and just have a conversation with the doctor and say, doctor, are you still supporting these vaccines? Let's go over the data. I'm concerned. And I think if, if patients actually one-on-one -on -one express concern with their doctors, it'll start to bring the doctors back to reality. And then uh, what patients are doing that's hurting is they're bypassing their doctors. They're giving up on their doctors and, and they're emailing me or somebody in my group. And there's only 500 of us and I, I can't take care of the whole country. I'm overloaded. I'm overloaded. I said, well, why, what did you ask your doctor? Oh, I didn't bother. It's like, no, bother with your doctor. You need to bring them back. Many of you want to get involved. So how can you get involved? There's a wonderful grassroots organization that's organizing all the other local grassroots organization and it's called Unity Project. Yeah, Unity yeah. Project organized the March on DC mandates. Uh, they're a wonderful group. So look at Unity Project. And then a lot of you are activated, faith-based and uh, worried about vaccine safety, FSC schools. Uh, go to the Truth for Health Foundation, truthforhealth.org. I'm the voluntary chief medical advisor there. There's lots of ways to get involved. There's community ways. There's Both of them have listservs. You pick up the emails, at least start to get the analyses as they come through. Uh, and then you can follow me personally, follow me on America Out Loud Talk Radio, McCullough Report. Um, I do have a, now a social media agent. Uh, so I'm up on all the platforms. I'm following all the rules. I haven't been deplatformed. It really takes professional help, by the way, to, to, to <laughs> navigate um, in social media because I'm older. So I'm older than all of you. So um, I don't navigate social media as well. Um, and then look for these public programs. I tell you, the public programs, I've given dozens of them. Uh, they are exciting. They're fun. People want to learn. Um, <laughs> oh, another wonderful uh, nationwide program is uh, through um, Clay Clark, Reawaken America, for instance. Uh, and I've spoken there. Um, I've been invited to speak at CPAC before. And I'm not a hardcore right winger. I'm really kind of a middle of the line person. So, um, <laughs> you, you know, so someone was texting me, you're, you're on, you're speaking at CPAC. And I said, I can't believe it. I tend to vote Democratic, but I, you know, I, I think we're all being um, brought together. And, and I think that's the main thing. Yeah. That's yep. right. Yep. Well, Dr. McCullough, thank you for coming together with us today, thank letting you. our audience hear from you. They will spread this far and wide, I can assure you. And thank we'll you. We'll take you back too. Yes, anytime. <laughs> anytime you want to come back. Thank you. Well, thanks, Jamie. And thank you for helping me out on Instagram so much. I'm, I'm indebted. You're so welcome. All right, Dr. McCullough, we'll see you later. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. All right, so we just wrapped up our conversation with Dr. McCullough. The three of us are still grinning from ear to ear that he even decided to give us his time today, so much of his time because we know how crazy busy he is. But we can tell, right, girls, that like he has a heart to help, that he really wants to get the message out and he wants to reiterate that the opinions he's sharing is really, he's backing it with data and he's challenging everyone to look at the data for themselves He's even challenged other doctors, scientists um, to come and debate him with it. So, you know, we could learn from both sides and nobody will, which right. I, I just think it's such a testament to his character 
um, the fact that he agreed to talk to little old us mm-hmm. when he's been on Joe Rogan. He's, uh, you know, constantly on national news um, syndicates and he's just Senate hearings. I mean, all these things. And that just goes to show you that his passion is getting his message out there because the mainstream, you know, he's being criticized by the mainstream media in this country has the megaphone. We know that he's being criticized by a lot saying misinformation. So it's just, it's so refreshing that somebody that we feel like, I'm sure y'all feel like is like a celebrity, like (laughs) humongous would take the time out of his day to speak to us. And um, so that we could share him with, with y'all. It just, it just warms my heart and well, it shows that he's in it for the right reasons. Yeah. He's in it for the right reasons. That's, and that's the main thing is that his goal is like our goal is to help as many people and share the right information with as many people as possible to save lives, to prevent hospitalizations and death. That should be the ultimate goal. And it is, and you could tell that that's with him. And I think it's also interesting that, you know, even though there's all these people saying, and it's really not tons of people, it's on one side yeah. that are saying misinformation because everybody else it, like agrees because he's presenting all of all of the facts, but that not one person has said anything directly to him. Not oh, one. Not person. one. Not, not one. one. That that was so interesting to me, and and I and I I wanted to ask this question, but we ran out of time. I wanted to ask him, what does it cost you, Dr. McCullough, to speak out mm-hmm. on what you were seeing when you get this kind of a backlash? I know Dr. Malone shared on Joe Rogan's podcast what it, you know some of what it had cost them personally. And he even spoke about Dr. McCullough, said that he had over $100,000 in legal fees just defending his own name for, for literally sharing, in his words, data and information and, and saying, if we're wrong, come show us that we're wrong. We're not seeing where we're wrong here because you're not bringing any data or even having the conversation. He even said with the doctor, with the Senator Johnson hearing that they invited all of these people to come meet with them and none of them would, they didn't even show up to the meeting to talk about the data. What is going on? And I also want to say in our little old us podcast, which I shouldn't (laughs) say little anymore because we have a good deal of listeners, but (laughs) We don't think of, we don't care. That's not what we're here. We're not here to make a name for ourselves. We don't get paid to do this. Probably should. We don't. Um, we, we, we're we not in this. For, we don't give our time and attention to this when we frankly don't have a lot of time and attention to give it, but we do. And put our names out there, put our necks on the line to literally deliver information. Not telling you what to think. We have our opinions. And if we influence you with our opinions, that's even not the intention. That's honestly not the intention. It's to say something seems wrong. Look into this with us and tell us what you see. And so often when if people have told us that they see something different and we say, give us the information, what do they say, girls? They don't. <laughs> they, don't. they just they just attack, they just attack something feelings-based. That's right. We become dangerous to society, white supremacists, Trump lovers, which none of which is the case, right? So, and even Dr. McCullough said, he said, I've voted Democrat most of my life. Like I'm not, I don't fit in that box either, you know? But it's just so weird that the only people willing to entertain like his his ideas and want to hear what he has to say happen to fall on one side of the political equation. So he's going to go there. You know what I mean? Even though, even though that's not his political affiliation, they're going to listen. 
So, and it just seems to be, you know, well, certain, it's just interesting. And it's just like what you said, we really shouldn't even know anybody's political yeah. side when we're talking about medicine and science. Mm -hmm. I mean, why and when did it get to this point? And maybe it was, and we just didn't know, you know, but I yeah. think definitely this has brought it to light. Um, I mean, we'll point to some sources for you guys to look at too. And, and we'll repost, YouTube took down the video interview of him back in May, 2021. That was truly, it was like the culmination. It was the first time anyone had an interview with a medical doctor working on the front lines, collaborating with doctors from all over the country. And to his point, he said, we were working separately, coming to the same conclusions. Right. That is so important. We weren't all together going, hey, let's come up with this idea. No, all separately. He said there were some differences, but the protocol was pretty much the same. And, and that is, to me, is important because, again, what did he have to gain by saying there's early treatment? What did he have to set, gain by saying, I got the vaccines? I believe he shared that he was vaccinated. Still got COVID and got it again, got the Omicron again. <laughs> Watched his whole family from his, he said, five to 90-something get it. So he's got experience with this. What does he have to gain? By know, did he get it? I don't know if he got it. Yeah, he said he did he said it because that's when he well he didn't know the about vaccine it. i'm talking about the vaccine oh i thought he did say he didn't say early, that. i think he did say early on was he not well i know we know dr malone did maybe mccullough didn't but malone, I, and and maybe maybe mccullough did I but I know you're right maybe he did vaccinated for everything else like i know that he said that he has vaccines for you know yeah. for everything i thought was super interesting is like you know the haters Normally, they're tying Dr. McCullough, Pierre, Cor like all these doctors are speaking out. They're like ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. Oh, they're the ivermectin. They just have have tied them to these two drugs that have been vilified, as you said, Holly. But when we talked about his McCullough protocol for Omicron, he's had to completely switch it and change it up based on current science and current data. So for all those people that just associate these highly credentialed doctors with those two drugs just because that's the easy way to to make them seem mm -hmm. delegitimize them basically what it showed me today is that he's willing to change his mind if yeah. that if he, he's willing to course correct depending based on, on based science. on the current science he is not just doubling tripling down on these these drugs these one or two drugs like this is what you do this is what you do this is what you do no he's looking at what's what's currently working and he's shifting and changing his protocol that's the kind of doctor i want that's the kind of person i want treating my covid yes exactly. well, and that's what the frontline doctors to do too dr corey and his group they meet globally so i'm just saying like not just mccullough and his report and his colleagues but yeah. even dr corey and they have weekly meetings i mean i get the zoom links every week yeah. and they are constantly updating it based on science based on the new variant based on what's working for y'all what's not working that is how medicine should work we we're still doing the same things in 2022 that we were doing in 2020. That's the difference. You know, I see our federal government doubling down on vaccines, right? Until until the Supreme Court told them they couldn't. Let's be real. That that until until somebody mm -hmm. said no, guess right. what? We were heading down that road of doubling, tripling, quadrupling down. What is is Israel on its fourth shot yet? I know it's been on yeah. its third. Like they were just gonna keep doubling down on something that was not preventing, not preventing the spread. Was it at best was just keeping people from horrible bouts with it, but not necessarily keeping, and we all know people who have died of COVID that had the vaccine. So 
it's so crazy to me that they keep doubling down on the same thing, lockdowns, mask wearing, and vaccines. These doctors are like, well, this drug worked better for Omicron. Remember when he said mm -hmm. um, the, the monoclonal antibodies, the specific brand that did not do as well with Omicron? Right. And so he said, so we switched it. Right. I mean, again, not being tight, your ego's not in, in the data. Your ego is, you, you are going to submit yourself to data and say, we're going to go as it shows us to go. Well, That's and I'll be honest. I mean, I, I'm just going to throw this out there because this is my opinion. And this is some research I've done. I have not done research on the new Pfizer pill that much, the oral pill that he mentioned. And I also, but I have done a little bit of research, not a lot, but the little bit that I have done on Molnupiravir, um, I did make a highlight in my Instagram. I'm not a fan of that at all and so and he added that he said that that's part of their protocol so that is one thing it, i just want y'all to know that even though we have these doctors on and we talk about what they're doing it doesn't we can still disagree with it I, and i still think you still need to be your own advocate and you still need to do your own research and do your diligence you know one thing with molnupiravir you have to be very careful if you are of childbearing age or anything like that because it, it's very important to look into that because it has some really bad effects on on, on people and yeah. it also also said yeah didn't it also say that the uh, men should wear make sure they were using protection for like three months after or something three months like after and then there was yeah. no data there's it wasn't that they said it's safe after three months they just said there's no data after three months right so, I mean, this is the thing, I, I don't know. I mean, those are things that I still would question. And I personally, again, my opinion, I am going to trust a medicine that has been around for decades with a high safety profile at, that's been used, whether people say, quote, anecdotally or not, um, that, has, that has all the safety. I would much rather go with that than something brand new. Because so, once again, we don't know. So get this, you guys. So um, you guys know, I, I think I've told the story on the podcast. My dad comes from a very rural area, North Carolina. When everyone got COVID there, many vaccinated, some not, but this was not like an unvaxed area just because just it's rural and Southern. Only they're not <laughs> vaccinated. Okay. I know the stereotypes that are out there. Um, no, it was heavily vaccinated, but they got COVID anyway over this last year. And because my dad in his 70s, history of heart disease. He was not the person we wanted to get COVID. He did great. We all know he used the McCullough protocol at the time, which was all those vitamins plus ivermectin. And dad did great. So he started when these people could not get ivermectin and the, and the vitamins. My dad was driving down the road delivering to the homes. Okay. Everyone survived. There were, there were, there were some that were close to going to the hospital. He took them. They recovered. And I'm telling you, I, I do believe my daddy did his part in helping saving some people big time because he was just willing to go do what he had learned. Well, his friend recently got the shingles and he was miserable. And my dad said, you know, I got some ivermectin, you know, my country dad, I got yeah. some ivermectin and um, it's an antiviral. I bet that might help with the shingles. Y'all, two weeks later, shingles were gone. Even the doctors oh were like, wait, hold on. What did you do? Yep. So I said, dad, I imagine that that's been probably put in a paper somewhere. Sure enough, quick Google search. Absolutely. They have used ivermectin for shingles. So all you people out there who are getting pressure to get this shingles vaccine, and many of you I know have gotten shingles after the shingles vaccine, 
I mean, go look into it. It can't hurt. And as, as, as Kristen said, the safety profile on some of these drugs is that it's, it's not a huge risk. It's not like it can have these horrible side effects. It's just not known with this drug. So what's it going to hurt to try, right? I and go know. research ivermectin and cancer yeah. on the NIH website. I mean, when I was doing research on ivermectin, I stumbled upon that. Yep. Like this medicine has cured river blindness. It helps with scabies. Obviously it helps with shingles. I mean, it, it can help in so many different ways. Just for the love of God, don't call it a horse dewormer anymore. <laughs> and, and I, here's something interesting. And I, I, we're definitely going to share this video because I screen recorded it the other day because one of the doctors at the roundtable discussion in um, DC that Dr. McCullough mentioned quite a bit, um, one of the physicians on there said, we can take any of these protocols and take two of the medicines out, two of the prescriptions out, doesn't even matter which ones, and you can still survive. And people get so hung up on the prescriptions and yeah. that's not what is saving you. No. You know, what's saving you is what Dr. McCullough says is you do not treat that. Even though you have mild symptoms, you don't assume it's going to be mild. You jump on it right away and you do the nasal washing and gargling to stop the viral replication. And that's going to prevent the severe illness and death because there's four pillars of the disease. It's the viral replication and then it's the inflammation and then it's the cytokine storm and all those things. So, but that's the thing. If you get a jump start on it and really the jump start should be now and prevention, then that is what's going to save you. And that's going to be the, the, the biggest prevention. Don't get hung up on, oh my gosh, who is going to prescribe me the medicine that I need? You right. may not even need a prescription. That's okay. Right. So that's just right. know that. That's right. And, and like he said, stopping the viral load at the source, what he said, 75% yeah. of it's in the nasal cavity. If you can stop it at the source, he contacted like, you may not need anything else. That may honestly right. knock it out right. for you. Exactly. And again, isn't that better than prescriptions and, and then hospital visits and hospital uh, stays and then death? I mean, because again, we, we wanted to ask him this question. How many people have died at home from COVID? Do we have a number on that? Because we, you just don't hear about it. It's happening in the hospitals. And there's a lot of um, speculation that the protocols that the hospitals are using are contributing to those deaths, right? I mean, that's-, that's And I would hesitate to say that's speculation, but we'll go with that. Well, no. I mean, it's speculation. I know, I wait, know. Wait. Yeah, no, but I mean, we do know that, kidney, that for example, kidney kidney damage as a side effect of remdesivir. Yeah. Okay. And then that's oh, yeah. yeah. So oh, yeah. we had so much more we wanted to ask. Oh my gosh, so, so much. So but much. Hopefully you'll be back. Yeah, I was like, can you please come back? So yeah. y'all just go ahead and send them messages and tell them how much you enjoyed it and, and share, say, share it. Please share it. Share. Yes. We're going to okay. love the love. <laughs> One of my favorite moments though, when we got on the Zoom call is we were, you know, we were laughing and joking around with him about, you know, him even giving, a, giving us the time and um, how, you know, his wife, he, you know, he's now this known figure and he's been living in obscurity, except in the medical community amongst all these intellectuals for all these years. I'm sure he didn't think two years ago he's going to be sitting on podcasts with these like, you know, middle-aged moms. But uh, <laughs> here he is. The funniest part was he was asking us how to use Instagram stories. He's like, how do I reshare? Yeah. So do I just add to my story? And then what is what happens after that? Um, it's what like, we're like, do? it's there. Then it's just there. It's like you just, it was, <laughs> And I wanted, he was like, I'm not as young as you, but guys, he's only like 10 years older than me. So I wanted to be like, hey, listen, I would not know either. If it wasn't for my job, I would have no clue how to do this stuff. I totally get it. Don't feel old. 
Um, but it was, it was fun and sweet. And y'all, he really is like, just I'm down sure to earth, he, just authentic. Yes. Yeah. Just, and you can tell it's the same way I felt with uh, Dr. Corey. When you, you hear his emotion and his testimony, when he's like, I just, people are dying and they don't have to. And I, and I, I can't live with that. You know, that, that kind of heart is behind this. And, you know, for people who say that there's money in it, and that's one thing I did want to ask him, like, are you getting paid by anybody for this? Oh, my gosh, from what we have been told from behind the scenes sources, it's costing him not, you know, he's lost his job, uh, you know, which we can't even talk about, but he's lost his job because of, you know, people not wanting to be associated with going against, and I hate to keep saying the narrative, but, I, but let's say the protocol, the federal protocol. Mm -hmm. That's what he's gone against with science and facts. And somehow that's made him the devil. It's so insane. Not it's once so does he mention finances. Not once does he mention huh. any of that. Like he literally just, I mean, he yeah. was ready to go. And yes, he is so busy. Day. He still has practice. I mean, he's still, I mean, he's, he's still, still patient. patient. He's still seeing patients. Well, he had to go. Yeah. I hope nobody was waiting in his waiting room. And I was like, sorry. I mean, God. We thought we were busy. I'm like, whew, man. I, and I, I do want to remind everybody, because I think it's important, and, and you can go on Twitter and you can read the other side. There are people who say that the email between Francis Collins to Dr. Fauci that happened in the fall of 2020, I think it was sent on October 8th, 2020, on a Thursday. The director of the NIH emailed Dr. Fauci. Dr. Collins, he since retired. <laughs> But he was the director of the NIH. He emails Fauci, and who is the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. And this is what it says. Hi, Tony and Cliff. It was Cliff Lane, who's also with NIH. This proposal from the three fringe epidemiologists who met with the secretary seems to be getting a lot of attention. By the way, that proposal was the Great Barrington Declaration, which was signed by, as we said in our last episode, thousands and thousands and thousands of scientists, doctors, practitioners around the world which said that our policy should focus on protecting the vulnerable and the elderly and largely everybody else get back to living normally. Okay, Dr. Collins has an issue with this and he calls three of these epidemiologists who are heading this up, fringe epidemiologists. Guys, they're from Stanford, Harvard and Oxford. <laughs> and this is what he says. And so when they talk about disinformation from our experts, you have let these, you've called these people experts for decades. Now they're called fringe lunatics or right. fringe You're an expert until 2020 and then you're and not. Now, now they're called misinformation or disinformation. Who the hell made you the information champions? Who decided that y'all have the information and these experts don't? That's the answer I can't get that no one can seem to answer. But this is what, this is what it said. He said, there needs to be a quick and devastating published takedown of its premises. I don't see anything like that online. Is it underway yet? Mm. And y'all, by the way, that um, when she says thousands and thousands, at this point, the Great De uh, Barrington Declaration has 920,000 signatures. 920,000 signatures. The fringe, that, that word fringe again. Uh-huh. You know? Like the fringe those, truckers in Canada. Yeah, the fringe minority. And then now we have the, those fringe physicians. Then this is global, y'all. This is all over all yeah. over yeah so i don't know I, it just it it kills me it kills it me it mm. well we we just had to hop on and and share sort of our little post uh post interview 
feedback and thoughts. And I wanted Kristen to mention the drugs because I did, you know, I, I did want to, I know Kristen had done some research on the Merck pill, not the Pfizer one. And I wanted just you to hear from her as a nurse who's looking through some of the clinicals and, and, and just know some of the, 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 the risks that are there, because I do think that's what I always want to know. You know, I was told Tylenol was safe for pregnancy all, all through all my right. babies. And now it's not. So, you know, it's just something to keep in the back of your mind. If God forbid you have to deal with COVID, although it's looking good that, you know, we're through this last wave. So here's yeah, yeah. the herd immunity and Let's the robust immunity. I mean, who do we know that has not had COVID or the vaccine? Are we, we have got, we got to be yeah, past herd immunity. Got, we have passed, passed. Okay. We're going to know. I said we can't though. I, I have a clip of that. Oh, uh, he oh, said we can't. He said, Hold on. Um, I probably, y'all probably won't be able to hear it if I play it. Okay. But anyway, he I can't even remember his it's I'll put it in our resources. It's oh, please put that audio clip from a recent podcast he was on that I was listening to. And I'm like, are you serious? We could just have a little Fauci. Um we could oh. have a fun, fun Fauci, fun Fauci Friday. Episode. We need to do a fun Friday. Oh, no, break he, said, down. he said it will never we'll we'll it will never be like it was. Life will never go back to um, what it was three years ago. Like he said, sure. be basically a it new will normal. Never, yeah, a new normal. It will never be the same, but we'll get close to a resemblance of what used to kind of be, but never what it was. I'm like, no, no, who, no, no, who, <laughs> I'm sorry. How old is he? Anybody have a clue how old he is? No, I don't know, but too old to be there. I'm at- <laughs> Um, I mean, I was going to say, I mean, in my lifetime, it will be normal because I ain't living like this. I don't care if I got to move to Florida or whatever I have to do. We already have been living normally. I mean, I mean, we'll just, let's just create a commune. We can do it. (laughs) We're good. Well, so many of us have lived really normally. I mean, shout out to Brooke Morgan. I know she's going to be listening, but my friend Brooke has not altered her life very much for the last two years good for her good for you and she's done great has autoimmune disease too y'all like a person who you might would you know consider at risk because of that autoimmune disease like you Kristen and she's just she's soldiered on I think she did get COVID she's fine she's fine so again I think it's about you know it, it is at this point take care of yourselves there's there's nothing we can do to help each other anymore I think the science says that right like me getting vaccinated doesn't save you anymore it can only help me potentially for a short window fight off the har- the harsher effects of covid that's what we know today as of the recording of this podcast so it's on me to get those vitamins get that exercise have a good diet take care of me take care of and me. if you wash your boogers then you're not going to be contagious <laughs> right because it's going to reduce the viral load Re- wash your boogers and gargle then you have a good breath too. So it's a win-win for everyone. <laughs> oh, let's go rinse our noses out, girls. Let's go do it. Let's All go right. Do it. All right, y'all. Let's do it. <laughs>